What is God like? What does he know? What does he control? Where is he? What is his relationship to time? Those are the kinds of questions we began looking at in the last episode of Thinking Theology. In the last episode, we began looking at what are often called the attributes of God. We looked at some of the non-moral attributes, God's self-existence, his eternity, omnipresence, omnipotence, and sovereignty. In this episode, we're thinking about some of God's other non-moral attributes, his omniscience, wisdom, immutability, infinity, unity, and simplicity. Hi, my name's Carl Denick. I'm a pastor, theologian, writer, and Bible college lecturer. Welcome to Thinking Theology, a podcast where we think about theology, the Bible, and the Christian life, not just for the sake of it, but so we can love God more with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first attribute we're looking at is omniscience, or to say it how it's spelt, omniscience. Omniscience refers to God's knowledge of everything. So Psalm 147 verse 4 and 5 says, He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Or Psalm 50 verse 11, I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine, says the Lord. Hebrews 4 verse 13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Or Job 28 verse 23 and 24, God understands the way to wisdom and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. So God knows all that happens in the world, but he not only knows that, he also knows what lies in our hearts and minds even before we do. So David says in Psalm 139, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. And yet there are a few passages in the Bible that suggest that maybe God doesn't know everything too. For example, in Genesis 18 verse 20, God says, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. But why does God need to go down to Sodom? Doesn't he already know what's going on there? Or in Genesis 22, after Abraham shows himself willing to sacrifice Isaac, God says to Abraham, Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. But didn't God already know what was in Abraham's heart? The same occurs in Deuteronomy 8, when God says of the people of Israel in the wilderness that the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. But again, didn't God already know whether they would keep his commands or not? Or in the very same psalm where David exalts God's knowledge of him, he also invites God to search me, God, and know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts. The solution to those questions is really quite straightforward, 
And that is that in each case, the issue is what God already knows being shown to be true. God knows what is going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, but he goes to see in order that he might be seen to be completely just. He knows what's in Abraham's heart and the heart of the people of Israel, but he tests them in order to bring to light what he already knows so that it might be plainly seen by Uh, Abraham and by his own people, what really lies in their hearts. So too in Psalm 139, it's because God knows what is in him that David is actually calling on God to know him. David is simply asking God to do what he already knows God does. But God not only knows what's going on at this very moment and everything that's going on in the past and everything that is inside of us, The Bible also tells us that God knows everything that will happen. So, for example, in 1 Samuel 23, verse 11, David asks God, Will the citizens of Calah surrender to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will. Again, David asked, Will the citizens of Calah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, They will. Clearly, God knows what is going to happen. Or in Jeremiah 1 verse 5, God says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. God knew Jeremiah before his birth. That knowledge is not simply knowing about, but knowing. God knows people in a relational sense. A bit like when I say that I know my friend, I don't simply mean that I know about him or that he exists, I actually know him in a deeper relational sense. I know what he likes and doesn't like. I know him. So too, the Bible says God knows his people. He even foreknows them, that is, knows them relationally before they are born. Finally, there's also reason to believe that God possesses what is sometimes called middle knowledge. That is, God knows what would have happened in particular situations that never occurred. For example, he knows what would have happened if you had have got up 10 minutes later today instead of the time that you did get up. Or he knows what would have happened if you said the thing you were thinking but decided not to say. There are a couple of passages in the Bible that highlight God's middle knowledge. So, for example, Jesus says in Matthew 11 verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus knows what would have happened had those miracles been performed. And again, in the same chapter, Jesus says, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Another little episode that demonstrates the same thing is in Jeremiah, where God says through Jeremiah to the king, if you surrender, then this will happen. But if you don't surrender, then that will happen. God knows what will happen, even in situations that never take place. He knows what will happen in alternative scenarios. That's what philosophers and theologians often call middle knowledge. Related to omniscience is wisdom. Although wisdom and omniscience are quite similar, the two are also distinct. While 
Omniscience focuses on knowing all the facts. Wisdom, in contrast, focuses on understanding. Not only does God know all that's going on in the world all the time, as well as that, he always also chooses the best and the wisest path, and he always knows what the best and wisest path is. So Job says in Job 12 verse 13, to God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are his. Just as power belongs to God, absolute power, so too does wisdom, counsel and understanding. In fact, God is not simply wise, but he is the very source of wisdom. So Proverbs 2 verse 6 says, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. That is, all wisdom that exists comes from God. Thus, All wisdom is found completely in God himself. Back in Job 12, Job continues, To God belong strength and insight. Both deceived and deceiver are his. He leads rulers away stripped and makes fools of judges. He silences the lips of trusted advisers and takes away the discernment of elders. He pours contempt on nobles and disarms the mighty. He reveals the deep things of darkness and brings utter darkness into the light. He deprives the leaders of the earth of their reason. He makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in darkness with no light. He makes them stagger like drunkards. In other words, not only is God wise, but his wisdom makes the wisdom of even the wisest people on earth foolish. He gives wisdom and he takes it away. But then Isaiah 28, 29 tells us that God's plan is wonderful and His wisdom is magnificent. That is, God's wisdom is not only complete and total, but it's also beautiful. We see a glimpse of that again in Romans chapter 11, when Paul's reflections on the wisdom of God's plan of salvation lead him to worship. Paul exclaims, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? or who has been his counsellor. God knows everything in the past, in the present, in the future. He knows what's going on in our hearts. He knows what would have happened under other conditions. And he also is supremely and perfectly and beautifully wise. Another attribute of God then is his immutability or his unchangeability. Numerous times God affirms that as one of his essential characteristics. So Psalm 102 verse 26 says, They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them and they will be discarded. But you remain the same and your years will never end. Or Micah 3 verse 6, I the Lord do not change. So you the descendants of Jacob are not destroyed. Or James 1 verse 17, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God is not one thing one moment and then something else the next. So too, God's self-revelation as I am implies that he is unchanging. He is today who he was yesterday and will be tomorrow who he is today. That's what the writer of Hebrews says too in chapter 13 verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. You and I change from day to day. Our character changes and we change physically. We get weaker or stronger. One day we're more tired than another day. But the same is not true of God. 
He is constant in his character. He's also constant in his very nature. He's always all-powerful. He's always all-knowing. And that means that we can always rely on him. But God is not only unchanging in his nature, he is also unchanging in his purposes and plans. So Numbers 23 verse 19 says, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Hebrews 6 verse 17 says, Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and so through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. God's nature, character, and his plans and purposes do not change. And yet, there are a number of places in the Bible that suggest that God does change in some way. For example, after the episode with the Israelites making the golden calf in the wilderness, we're told in Exodus 32 verse 14, then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Or literally, God changed his mind. So too in Judges 2 verse 18, it says, Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies, as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. Or Jonah 3 verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented, he changed his mind and did not bring on them the disaster he had threatened. In fact, Joel 2 tells us that God changing his mind and relenting is part of his very character. Return to the Lord, says Joel. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Maybe the strangest example, though, is in 1 Samuel 15, where God says that he regrets making Saul king. And then only a few verses later, Samuel says that God is not a God who changes his mind or regrets. So how do those ideas work together? How is God unchanging, but also in some sense responsive? Well, the first thing to realize is that God genuinely responds to his creatures. God is grieved by the things we do. He punishes us for our rejection of him. He responds with grace to repentance. In the history of the church, a view arose out of a kind of overly strong definition of God's unchangeability. And that view said that God was also impassable or literally without passions. It held that God did not really have emotions and did not really respond to his creatures in any meaningful sense. But the Bible portrays, as we've seen, God as responding and reacting in meaningful ways. Our actions can grieve God. He sympathizes with our weakness and so on. And yet God does that in such a way that neither his nature, nor character, nor his plans, nor purposes are changed. So when God relents from sending judgment on Nineveh, it's because they've repented. We know from other places in the Bible that God's threat of judgment is often conditional. He's willing to relent if people return to him. We saw that in Joel chapter 2. 
So also too in Jeremiah 18, we're told, like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. If at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I intended to do for it. God is willing to relent if people return to him in repentance and faith. That's actually in accord with his plan and purpose, as we saw in Joel chapter 2. It's perfectly in line with his unchanging character. So too, pushing into that passage in 1 Samuel 15, God is rightly grieved that he made Saul king. But that is not to say that God is not still achieving his purposes. Everything still happened exactly as God had planned. We know that Saul was never the king that God intended to be the ultimate king because he was from the tribe of Benjamin and not Judah. So too, Saul represented the king that the people wanted. In other words, God gave the people what they wanted, but in his plan, God had purposed another king, David, whose descendant Jesus would sit on God's throne forever. God had given the people what they wanted in the short term, but he would still work out through Saul and through the removal of the kingship of Saul, he would still work out his great plan and purpose. The next attribute we're going to think about is God's infinity. Infinity can be understood in several ways. As John Frame points out, Greek philosophy understood infinity in two ways either the absence of limitations or positively existing so far beyond reality that it cannot be named. Frame describes both those ideas as the non-Christian view of transcendence. Defining and understanding infinity as the complete absence of limitations is problematic because God is limited in some senses. For instance, God cannot sin. God cannot create another God. Both those would violate his own character. God cannot make himself cease to exist. So too, God's love is not infinite in every sense. God loves some and not others. He loved Jacob and not Esau. He loves his own people in a saving way, but those he does not save, he loves in a way that clearly doesn't lead to their salvation. But far from those things being inadequacies, or limitations in God, they are actually part of his perfection. And so Frame says that we should understand God's infinity in either or both of the following ways. One, that God is free from the limitations inherent in creaturely existence, the kind of limitations that you or I might have. And two, that God's attributes are supremely perfect and without any flaw. So for example, not only is God's power complete, It is perfect power, that is, it's exercised perfectly in every way. But moving beyond that kind of basic idea of God's infinity is actually surprisingly tricky. As we've seen, we need to ask what it means, for example, for God's power to be perfect, or what it means for God's love to be perfect. The idea of God's infinity actually opens up to us one of the dangers of theology done poorly. 
by simply saying that God is infinite, we open the possibility of a kind of philosophical speculation on the basis of nothing more than our own imagination. So we say God is infinite, and then we begin to imagine what it might mean that God is infinite. And as we do that, our speculations become untethered from the Bible. Fundamentally, the only way we can know what it might mean that God is infinite is by understanding the ways that he describes himself to be that. How does God describe his power? What limits does he place on it himself? What limits does he place on his love? And so on. Of course, beyond that, there's also a sense in which God's infinity means that he is beyond our knowing. So Job says, can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths below. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. And Psalm 145 says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. But to say that we can't understand everything about God is not to say that we can't understand anything about God. God has revealed things about himself in the scriptures so that we can know him, even if he hasn't explained everything that there is to be known. And the limited knowledge that he reveals to us is still true knowledge. So undoubtedly there will be some ways in which God's infinity exists that we simply don't know or can't know for certain, but there are many ways that the Bible describes and we do well to list those, understand those, and leave the rest unknown. If God felt that we needed to know those things, then he would have told us. Finally, there's also the idea of God's unity. The unity of God really just refers to the idea that God is one. There's only one of him. We saw a couple of episodes ago that God is the only God. So God says in Isaiah 45 verse 18, I am the Lord and there is no other. That idea too lies at the heart of the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, or better, you shall have no other gods apart from me. There's only one God. Perhaps the most famous expression of the unity of God comes in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That idea is repeated in the New Testament. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8, We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Paul is saying that although people have made up all kinds of idols and gods, there's actually only one real God, and yet that God is in some way complex. He is both Father and Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll dig into that unity and complexity in a few episodes' time when we come to think about the Trinity. But Jesus also affirms the unity of God and he uses it as the ground for us to love God with all our being. Jesus says in Mark chapter 12 that the most important command is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The reason we can love God with all of our being is that there is only one of him. 
Our love is not divided among many gods, but it's focused on one God. That's because there is only one God. But often alongside the biblical idea of God's unity is set the idea of what's called God's simplicity. Now, that idea holds that God is free from any division into parts. And at a surface level, that seems fair enough. For example, the Father, Son and Spirit are not parts of God. God is not like human beings in which we can distinguish perhaps a body and a spirit uh, and indeed where our spirit can exist apart from our body. Nevertheless, in theology, simplicity tends to move beyond that rather reasonable idea to something more philosophically complex. Simplicity also holds that it is impossible to distinguish between God's essence and his attributes. God simply is justice. God simply is love. Moreover, it's impossible to distinguish between those attributes. Strange as it may seem, the reason for holding that view is that those Theologians are concerned not to make God dependent on something external to him. For example, if love is a characteristic of God, then God is dependent on some idea that's outside of himself, or so they argue. That might all seem a bit weird, and to be honest, I think it is. It's the perfect example of what I called way back in Season 1, Episode 1, philosophy rather than theology. Philosophy asks, what do I make of the world that I see? How do I think it works? And indeed, how do I make sense of God from my own imagination? While theology asks, what does God say about the world that I see? How does God say that it works? Or to be more specific, what does the Bible say about the world that I see? What does God say about himself in the Bible? The problem is there just isn't any explicit biblical support for the more complex philosophical idea of God's simplicity. There's some support For example, the theologian Herman Barvink says that there's evidence in the fact that God is not only described by various adjectives, he's loving, gracious, kind, but also by the fact that he's described using nouns. God is love. God is justice. But it needs to be asked whether those verses that say God is love are really intending to say that is what God actually is in his essence and being. Instead, To say God is love is to say that love is completely summed up by God. God is the source of love. He is the perfect definition and expression of love. Divine simplicity is a perfect example of coming up with a complicated philosophical idea to protect a whole lot of other ideas when we'd probably just be better off saying what we mean. That is, ideas like love, justice, righteousness, and so on are not ideas external to God. Rather, they are intrinsic to God. He is their definition and perfect expression and source. And they're not parts of him that he can switch on and off, but they are the very fabric of who God is. God is all-knowing. He's all-wise. He does not change. He's infinite and perfect. He is one God. Again, it's important that we realize that these attributes of God are not just interesting things to know. They help us relate to God. God's omniscience, his knowledge of everything that has happened and will happen, gives us great confidence. We know that we can trust him. After all, as John Feinberg points out, a God who was all-powerful, but who didn't know everything that was going on, as well as everything that was going to happen, 
would be a terrifying idea that God could intervene in the world in disastrous ways, but the God who controls everything also knows everything. So to his omniscience, his wisdom means that we can absolutely trust him to know what's best for us. And we can trust him that he always knows not only what we tell him, but also what we don't tell him. He knows how we feel. He knows those things even better than we know those things ourselves. So to God's immutability means that we can trust him to be the same tomorrow as he is today. God doesn't change like the people around us change. He doesn't change like we change. He is constant, reliable, dependable. We can come to him today in the same way that we came to him yesterday. Well, that's it for this episode of Thinking Theology. Join me next time as we think about the character of God. That is, what is God like to relate to? Please join me then. Thank you.